0: Our scripture reading today is from John chapter 8 verses 31 through 38 this is found on page 894 of your pew Bible if you don't own a Bible we'd love for you to take that one home as a gift from us. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him if you abide in my word you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Thanks so much, Kay. Well, good morning, welcome to the Brookside Campus of Christ Community. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Taylor and I'm one of the pastors here. And here in a minute, we're gonna get into a time of of teaching where we're going to uh, unpack the the text that Kay just read so wonderfully for us. Uh, But before we do that, uh, there's a moment that that we just wanna take to pause and to pray for, um, especially for our our city and um, those of us who who know us well and have been a part of Christ Community for a long time, know how carefully we we try to, to navigate issues of, of faith and politics. Uh, we believe that there can be significant diversity of opinion uh, within the church around political issues while maintaining the same faith. So because of this, we we avoid as much as possible even the the appearance of, of partisanship and how we talk about our role in the Carmen Good, and we, we certainly don't promote specific candidates or political parties or anything like that from the pulpit. Um, but however, as, as I'm sure many have heard by now, uh, there is an upcoming amendment vote in the state of Kansas, the Value Them Both Amendment, which will give direct vote to the citizens of Kansas. Uh coming up on, on August 2nd. And some of you, when you hear me mention that, are probably like nodding along, thinking like, yes, finally you brought this up. Uh, some of you, though, might be confused or even concerned on why uh, we would choose to even mention this or talk about this from the pulpit. Uh, either way, just please know that I understand. Uh, we, our senior leadership and campus pastors did some serious wrestling before deciding to take this time in the service, because again, it's not something that we normally do. But we believe that, that this is a significant enough moment for residents of Kansas who go to our church, that we just want to spend a moment in prayer surrounding the different complexities that go along with a vote like this. So I invite you to just just bow your heads and join me uh, as we, we seek our Father together. Father God, you have invited us to be part of your mission to protect the vulnerable in all areas of life and to bring justice to our hurting and broken world. That is your mission, thank you for inviting us into that. And with that mission in mind, uh, first we, we do grieve the tragic loss of so many vulnerable unborn children who have inherent value and worth as human beings who bear your image. With that same mission in mind, we contend fervently for those vulnerable children who are in the adoption and foster care system, praying that you would establish the, the work of local partners like Care Portal who are involved in in supporting those children. With that same mission in mind, God, we contend fervently for the vulnerable women who are in crisis pregnancy situations, who are rightfully scared and anxious right now. Please, God, be their comfort. We pray again that you would establish the work of local partners like Advice and Aid who are involved in supporting those women. With that same mission in mind, God, we contend fervently for those for whom the topic of abortion is deeply personal and deeply painful, especially those in our church family, maybe even sitting in this room, who know that heartbreaking complexity firsthand. We ask that you would be near to them and that they would see you as a God who weeps with them and calls them your beloved. With that same mission in mind, we confess that your mission will not be accomplished through legislation, nor does the kingdom come through force or power, but that you alone can bring justice and healing to our world. So we pray that you would help us think creatively about the various ways we can seek justice for all of your children from womb to tomb, whatever the outcome of the vote on August 2nd. With that mission in mind, we are grateful to live in a country where we do have the opportunity to participate in our legal system. So we pray now that we, your church, would take advantage of that opportunity by researching carefully the complexities of this legislation and considering prayerfully what we should do, seeking your wisdom and insight above all else. With that same mission in mind, God, please give us the courage and the humility to have respectful, face-to-face conversations with people who disagree with us. And with that same mission in mind, finally, God, please give us and all those we prayed for just now, a profound hope in your coming kingdom. Help us look to the day when all injustice will bow and all tears will be wiped away by the nail-scarred hands of our King, whom we will worship alongside people from every tribe and tongue and nation, every political persuasion, socioeconomic status, every era of history, man and woman, born and unborn. We pray this in the name of your Son, our King, and by the power of his spirit. Amen. Well, in order to uh, transition to the sermon from that, uh, I thought it would be appropriate to tell you a story uh, from the early days of my marriage. So I've been married to my wife, Ashton, uh, for just over six years. There's a great picture of us up there. And like all marriages, it's had its share of high points and low points. Uh, so this morning, I want to share a moment that I was reminded of recently uh, that happened early on in our marriage, and I'll just leave it to you to decide whether that's a high point or a low point. So you can, you can they'll put that in your court. Uh, but we'd been married a couple of years, uh, and Ashton was leaving town for the weekend. And it just happened to be the first time uh, that, that since we'd gotten married that I was going to be home alone for the weekend. She was going to be gone for four days And as I was driving home from dropping her off at the airport, one thought was running through my head. I'm free. I'm free. Now, I want to be clear. I adored living with Ashton. I didn't feel trapped. This isn't a ball and chain situation. It's not what I'm talking about. All I meant when I thought I was free was this. I'm going to spend this weekend doing all of the things that I don't do when she's here. So what food do I like that she doesn't like? I'm going to eat all of that food. What things do I like to do that she doesn't like to do? I'm going to do them all. She was more of an early to bed type, I was more of a stay up late type, so I was like, I'm gonna stay up as late as I want. Essentially, I was like a kid hoping that they would, like waiting for the day they'd be an adult, right? I'm gonna do all these things. I'm free to do all of that stuff, that's all I meant. And it just so happened that that weekend, those four days, uh, were the first four days of the first weekend of March Madness, which is like an all-time sports weekend, right? And so I spent four days straight in a basement watching March Madness. When I wasn't watching basketball, I was playing Zelda on the Switch. I lived on a steady diet of wings and tacos and cheese and IPAs. I stayed up until 1 a.m. most nights. I I honestly don't think I saw the sun once. Like, we lived in a basement, guys, and I just stayed there the whole weekend. And at the end of the weekend, let me tell you, I felt awful. (laughs) I felt so bad, uh, I had the worst heartburn that I've ever experienced in my life. Turns out wings do that to you when that's all you eat. Uh, I had never had a migraine before and I got the first migraine that I had ever experienced and have ever experienced since. Like the only migraine in my life was that weekend. So I texted Ashton on Sunday as she was on her way back and I was like, babe, I would be a mess without you. <laughs> because it's true, I would be an absolute mess uh, without her. The, the concept of freedom is a concept that matters a lot to us as human beings, especially as Westerners and Americans. It's something that each person in this room, in one way or another, I think deeply longs for, is the, the, to feel like you are free. Yet what I found out on my weekend alone is that there is a tension that exists with the idea of freedom, and it's this. We all long for freedom, but it's possible to call something freedom that isn't really freedom. We all long for freedom, but it's possible to call something freedom that isn't really freedom. And this morning, we're being invited to consider this question. What if, for all of our desire to be free, what we rely on for liberation is actually just another form of bondage? And the text we heard read a few minutes ago, Jesus offers us a way to be what he calls free indeed. In other words, there's a kind of freedom that isn't real freedom, that isn't freedom indeed, and there is a kind of freedom that is real freedom. So we're going to let three questions guide our time together this morning. First, what is real freedom? Second, if that's what real freedom is, who opposes real freedom? Why did, what gets in the way of our experience of that kind of freedom? And then finally, how can we really be free? So what is real freedom? Who opposes that freedom? And how can we really be free? Here's the first question. What is real freedom? I invite you do, if you haven't, open up your, your Bible to John chapter 8 or pull it up on, on your phone. If you go up to Google and you type in John 8, uh, someone lives up in the clouds somewhere who will grab that and put it on your phone. Uh, and you can read it there as well. John chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 30. As he was saying these things, And if slave does not remain in the house forever, the sun remains forever. So if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. So notice first how Jesus promised that they will be set free strikes a nerve with his audience. Like they are not happy about it. Why not? Well, because to say that you will be set free implies that they aren't currently free, Right? And that, that mere suggestion that they might still be enslaved offends them. It's an insult to these Jewish people of their status and heritage as Abraham's children. So they're like, hey, Jesus, like, whatever freedom you're peddling, we don't need that stuff. We're already free. We've never been slaves, uh, which isn't, by the way, a denial that they were slaves in Egypt. They're not talking politically here. They're talking spiritually. They're like, hey, we're Abraham's offspring. We're, we're God's chosen people. We have the law. <laughs> We've always been free because we belong to God. He chose us us. So we don't need this freedom thing. But Jesus responds to them by by framing the conversation a little bit differently. He he, he frames it with a few key ideas about slavery and freedom that that challenge their understanding of what it means to really be free. The first idea that, that frames this conversation is this. He suggests we are all enslaved to something. We are all enslaved to something. Remember, Jesus is a Jewish person, so he recognizes the value of their status and heritage. He's not diminishing that. He says, though, that that these things aren't enough on their own to make someone free. They're not enough to make someone free. Instead, he makes the case that everyone, including the first century Jewish people he's speaking to, and including people who live in Kansas City in 2022, everyone is enslaved to something that he calls sin, now notice, when Jesus talks about speaking, or when he speaks about sin, when he talks about sin, he's talking about something that's more than just isolated actions or mistakes. So he's not just talking about the actions we, we take that might be sinful. When Jesus talks about sin, he talks about it as if it is a power, something personal, personified evil that has a hold on us, that holds human beings captive. When Jesus talks about sin, he often talks about it, as he does here, as a power that has hold over us. And if you read people like the Apostle Paul in Romans 6, who who agree with Jesus' assessment here, you know that, that when sin reigns over us, the idea that it can rule over us, when that happens, what it does is it makes things that aren't God our master. Instead, we could be ruled by our selfish desires. We could be ruled by the law or by legalism or by religion. We could be ruled by the idols we set up in our hearts or fear or shame or, or bitterness or wings and cheese. <laughs> by just about anything, sin gives it the power to reign Over us, The author, Becky Pippert, puts it this way. She says, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. So that's the first idea that Jesus wants to get across, that we're all enslaved to something, particularly a power called sin. Here's the, the second idea that he uses to frame this conversation. We cannot free ourselves. We cannot free ourselves. He continues by using the metaphor of a household. And he says in a household, uh, you might have uh, slaves and you might have sons. And when the slaves, the household slave, is is only around on a temporary basis, right? They're not a permanent fixture in the household. Uh, That's what makes them different from the son, is a son has permanent standing in the house. And whereas the son has the authority to release slaves as he pleases, The slave himself is helpless to change their own situation, right? A slave can't free themselves. They're helpless. They need someone else, someone outside to change their situation and set them free. The point Jesus is making is that in the same way, there is nothing we can do within ourselves no status or heritage as his audience is looking to, no actions or works, no self-discovery process, no force of our will, nothing we can do can release us from this captivity to the power of sin. So we're all enslaved to something and we can't set ourselves free. That's the picture so far. Here's the third idea. This is an important one. We can mistake freedom for bondage. We can mistake Freedom for bondage. See, the true irony of the situation the Jewish leaders are in isn't just that the things they've been relying on for freedom can't set them free. That's not the the whole picture. It's actually that those things that they're looking to for freedom are the very things that are keeping them enslaved. They're the very things keeping them enslaved. Later on in the book of Galatians, the apostle Paul will, will, will talk to those who relied on the law to set them free and call them slaves to The law. So they're looking to the law for freedom, but they're actually enslaved to the law. And here's the idea that lies behind this. We are most in danger when what we look to for freedom is just another form of slavery. We are most in danger when we think we've found freedom, but we really haven't. When maybe, like Jesus' audience, we are blinded to the ways we are enslaved, or or even we are aware of them but outright deny. those things now if you asked an average person today to define freedom for you if you just went to anyone uh, in this room or out on the streets and said define freedom you would probably hear something along these lines freedom is the ability to do whatever you want freedom is the ability to do whatever you want the more free you are the more you act on your desires the more free you are, the more you resist any kind of limits or constraints that could be placed on you by someone else. That's the popular imagination of what freedom looks like today. That's the water that we, that we swim in. And what I want us to notice this morning is how Jesus' words here and these key ideas grate against both religious ideals about freedom and modern ideals about freedom. It grates against them both. Because on the one hand, Jesus says it's possible that we can live religious lives out of duty or guilt instead of joy and freedom. We can live religious lives that are based on performance or that rely on our ancestry or our status or who our parents were or our privilege or, hey, I've been in the church my whole life. Lives that aren't marked by the freedom and joy Jesus offers but actually are just held captive by legalism. He says that is possible. So it grates against those religious ideals. But on the other hand, if we trust Jesus' words here, then freedom cannot boil down to just doing whatever you want. That can't be what freedom really is. And in addition to Jesus' ideas, there are a couple practical reasons that that just doesn't work out in our daily lives. For one thing, there's our competing internal desires that make this version of freedom shaky. If you just say like, follow every desire you have. Uh, The thing is, sometimes I want two things that are at odds with each other. Sometimes I want two things that are odds with each other. Let's say, for example, that I desire to get in shape and lose weight, that that's a true desire that I have. But let's say, for example, that I also desire to eat an entire block of cheese every night. I desire health, and I desire cheese. Something has to give, right? I have to choose to place a limit on one desire so that I can be free to fulfill my other desire. And we all know that I'm choosing cheese, right? (laughs) You have to place a limit on one to be free to enjoy the other. So there's our competing internal desires. But additionally, the modern ideal of freedom has the problem of competing external desires. The phrase, you do you, is really great in theory until I want to do something that's at odds with something you want to do. And then what? What do we do? Something has to give, right? Some, someone has to limit their own desires for the good of someone else. If you take my, my story earlier as an example, marriage is a great example of this, where if you're in a, a true healthy marriage, you're gonna have to have a back and forth of sacrificing your own desires for the good of another. So if the Jewish people were off in, in one way on their idea and understanding of freedom, our modern society is often the opposite. And in both cases, Jesus suggests that we are depending on something that isn't real freedom. So what is? What is real freedom? I think we could describe it like this. Real freedom isn't being limitless, but choosing the right limits. Real freedom isn't being free of all constraints, but choosing the right constraints that will lead to flourishing. It isn't just being free from something, but being free for something else. It isn't being untied to any masters, but choosing the master who can truly give you the life you long for. It's not being limitless, but choosing the right limits to free you up to flourish. One of my favorite examples of this, I'm um, a big basketball guy, is, is a man named Tim Duncan. Tim Duncan is, is widely regarded to be one of the 10 best basketball players to ever live and probably the best power forward who ever played the game. And not only did he have great personal success, but he also had great team success. The San Antonio Spurs had one of the longest runs of domination in NBA history, winning five championships over the span of of 15 years with Duncan as their centerpiece. And what started to leak in the the mid to late 2000s was that Duncan would choose to take pay cuts in order for his team to be free to sign players who would help them continue competing at the highest level. You'd take pay cuts. And also, unlike a lot of players today, instead of jumping ship uh, and going to another team when things didn't look great, he chose to stay under the masterful coaching of Greg Popovich. In other words, he chose the right constraints for the best possible personal and team success. You see this also with athletes who have these crazy diet regimens, right? They're, They're choosing constraints to free them to have the best success. The best imagery that we have of this kind of idea in scripture uh, is is the image of the yoke. The image of the yoke. A yoke is by nature an object of constraint and limits, right? Those oxen are under constraint and limits. You're literally, when you're yoked to something, you're tying yourself to another person and taking on a burden, which is why it's an image that's often associated with, with slavery, So Paul will say things like this to the Galatians who had been set free from their religious bondage. He'll say, for freedom Christ has set us free, stand firm therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. But notice, Paul isn't saying, and don't submit to any other yoke. Live life free of yokes, which is not a call to an egg-free life but instead we remember that Jesus extended this remarkable invitation to us. In Matthew 11, he said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light." which means real freedom then, isn't found by refusing to be tethered to any yoke. It's choosing the right yoke. It's choosing the yoke that is easy and light over the yoke that is hard and heavy and burdensome. In other words, it is choosing intimacy with Jesus and surrendering to him as the master of your life. And he'll tell his audience here, if we don't choose those good constraints, Then we will live lives in bondage to sin and death, whether we think we are or not. So, before we we continue this morning, I just want to encourage us to reflect on this question Is there anything in your life that looks like freedom, but might really be holding you captive? Is there anything in your life today that looks like freedom, but might really be holding you captive? Just take a minute to think about that. Now, if that's Jesus' vision of real freedom, we have to ask what gets in our way? What gets in our way of experiencing this kind of abundant life that Jesus offers us? Another way we could ask that is just to ask who opposes real freedom? Who opposes this kind of freedom. Let's return to to see that answer to John chapter 8, where the crowd continues to push back on Jesus. We'll pick it up in verse 37. First, Jesus says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me, because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham's our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality, which is probably a subtle jab at Jesus. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. When I was in college, uh, my friends made fun of me for the way I eat my eggs. So now we're talking about eggs. We weren't earlier, now we are. See, whenever I eat eggs, I order them over easy, and I take a fork, and I mash them up to bits before I put them in my mouth. It's a weird way to eat eggs, right? One of my friends saw me doing this one night at IHOP. We were out there late, and she was like, wait, you just like mash up all of your food? <laughs> like, what is this thing you're doing? I was like, no, that's just the way that my dad ate his eggs growing up. My dad did that to his eggs, so I do that to my eggs. See, there are certain things that, that I have, have picked up over time by imitating my dad. Another one, in addition to our uh, egg-devouring strategies, is the way that I count. <laughs> so we both count starting thumb, pointer, middle finger, pinky, fourth finger. One, two, three, four... Five. that's just just how we count. (laughs) For better or worse, and probably in my situation for worse, (laughs) our family of origin has a profound impact on who we are and how we act today. Talk to any psychologist who's worth their salt and they'll, they'll tell you the same thing. And this is the idea that Jesus is drawing on here. That the way we live showcases whose ideals are truly forming and shaping us. The way we live, the way we act, Reveals whose ideas are truly forming and shaping us. And Jesus' audience, he says, is revealing their true father by the way they're acting. He's like, see, if if Abraham were your father, you would welcome me and listen to me because that's how Abraham lived. That's what he did in Genesis 18 when God sent the messengers. He welcomed them in and received them. Similarly, if, if God were your father, you would love me because I was sent by God and God loves me. So you'd respond to me with obedience and joy because I came from God. But instead, he says, you don't belong to either Abraham or God. You don't act like they act. You don't want what they want. No, you're seeking to do something else with me. He says, I know that you're looking for a chance to kill me. And he's right because at the climax of of John chapter 8, These same people who are listening to him are going to pick up stones and try to kill Jesus. He says, you're looking to kill me. That's not something Abraham did. That's not something God does. In fact, that sounds like someone else entirely. Let's keep reading in verse 43. says, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now this is uh, pretty harsh, right? He says the only option is that your true father is the devil. You're doing what the devil does. You want what the devil wants. Your family of origin is a family of murder and lies. And that imagery of of murder and lies is clearly calling back to the very beginning of our library of Scripture in Genesis chapters 2 to 3. It's actually the first place, too, you might not have realized, this is the first place that we see the idea of freedom, the word free in the Bible, is Genesis chapter 2. Look with me, where we read this, that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will surely die. So the story of human beings begins with God creating an abundance of food and plants and saying, eat and enjoy this. He tells Adam, you are free to eat from all of this stuff. It's a life of freedom and generosity and abundance. Now notice how this squares with the way we defined real freedom earlier. There is an abundance to enjoy, but in order to freely enjoy that abundance, they must take on a limit, a constraint. Don't eat fruit from the tree of knowing good and evil. If you can take on this limit, you can enjoy freely everything else. Of course, if you know the story, you know that they chose to throw off this one constraint in hopes that there was something more. They thought if they just escaped this limit and was free from all constraints, they would truly be free to decide what is good for themselves. It's really a precursor to kind of our modern concept of freedom. I want us to, to take a look at what led them to this conclusion in Genesis chapter three. So is exactly what Jesus is drawing on here. Chapter three starts like this. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Record scratch, did he say that? No, kind of said the opposite. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it, didn't say that either, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's going on here? The serpent deceives Eve into thinking something along these lines. God is restrictive and withholding, not generous and abundant. God is restrictive and withholding. Notice how their their discourse leaves out the word free that God used, which is really significant in Jewish meditation literature because they would repeat things a lot, word for word. But their whole conversation leaves out that word free. What the serpent is doing is making Eve doubt that life in the garden is really a life of liberation. He's making her doubt that life in the garden is really the free life. And Jesus' point is this. This is how the enemy, who he calls the devil, has always acted from the very beginning. From the very beginning, he has used lies to keep human beings enslaved to sin and shame and death, all of which follow this moment in Genesis 3. Sin and shame and death. From the beginning, he's used lies to keep us enslaved to those things. From the very beginning, he has used lies to make us think that God is opposed to our freedom instead of the source of our freedom. As one biblical author puts it, his goal is to seek, to kill, and destroy, and that's what it's always been. That's what Jesus means when he calls him someone who's a murderer and a liar. In his book, uh, Live No Lies, John Mark Comer, who's a pastor in Portland, makes the case that, that the devil accomplishes his goal like this. This diagram is really helpful. That the devil uses deceptive ideas or lies that play to the already disordered desires of our hearts, the things we want that are out of place, and that those things are then normalized in a sinful society. Those lies become the norm that our culture believes. The other way of putting this would be to say that our culture becomes a cycle that reinforces the lies of the enemy, that preys on our desires and keeps us enslaved. We have to recognize, too, that we're complicit in that because we take the lies that we have heard from the enemy and we speak them over ourselves and over other people. This is the world we live in today. And as much as some of us might wonder this at times, What Jesus wants us to see is that Jesus isn't the opponent who threatens our freedom by asking us to take on limits. Jesus isn't that opponent the devil is. His goal is death, his weapon is lies, and his harvest is plentiful. He is our opponent. If we're going to really be set free, we have to recognize that there is a personal evil in our world who tries to oppose our freedom at every turn, sowing lies, reaping death. So let me ask you to just take a moment to reflect on this question. Thinking back to what came to mind maybe earlier, what lies of the enemy are holding you captive right now? What lies of the enemy are holding you captive right now? Maybe there are lies about what will make you truly happy. Maybe they're just ideas that distort the small thing and make it the main thing. Maybe they're half-truths about who you are or who God is or how God sees you. What lies are holding you captive right now? So we've talked about what real freedom is. We've talked about who opposes our freedom and how he does it. So the last question we have to ask then is, is how can we really be free? To see this way forward in freedom, what we have to do is we have to look back at what Jesus says from the very start in John H uh, verse 31 in the section we looked at today. Here's what he says He says, the, So Jesus John says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. So what Jesus calls the truth is the greatest weapon against the lies of the enemy. If you read all of John 8, you would see that the words about Jesus' word or his teaching or his truth appear over and over and over and over again. In fact, in verse 45, he will tell them this, but because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. He says because, not although I tell the truth, because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which is an indicator that just like so many of us can do today, they have become so entrenched in their own worldview that they hate to hear the truth. They refuse to shift their framework to allow for what is true about Jesus. It's worth saying again at the end of John 8, these same people are going to pick up stones and actually try to kill Jesus because they just can't handle hearing the truth. When we talk about truth, all we're talking about is, is what lines up with reality. We're talking about what is real. That's the, the truth. So when Jesus promises that they know the truth, he's just saying that he's able to free them to live and step with how life really works. And he makes it abundantly clear this kind of real freedom, the kind that my favorite movie, Hot Rod, would call too legit to quit, that kind of freedom can only be found in him. It can only be found when we take on his yoke instead of the yoke of slavery to sin, to the law, to ideals, to ourselves, or to anything else that we might be tempted to serve. It can only be found in him. Later on, Jesus will say, This famous statement, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. So when he says you will know the truth, what he's ultimately saying is abide in me, remain in me, stick with me, and you will know me, and I will show you the path to what is true. This is a deeply relational, personal intimacy with Jesus that unlocks a life of freedom in him. Freedom to live and step with how life really works. Remember again what he said in verse 36. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Friends, we need someone outside of ourselves to set us free. We need Jesus to liberate us, to give us the gift of freedom from sin to show us how to live in congruence with what is real, to help us ward off the deceptive ideas of the enemy and replace the lies of the evil one with the truth of the Son. To replace the lies of the evil one with the truth of the Son. So I want to close us with a a prayer that's also sort of a, a prayer exercise this morning. Something that I think that will help us start to take the first step in walking freely in the abundant life that Jesus offers us. So as we do this, what I'm going to invite you to do now is I'm just going to invite you to close your eyes. We're going to do kind of an imaginative prayer exercise. So close your eyes. You might want to just take a couple of, of deep breaths in and out to center yourself on Jesus in the presence of God. when you have, let's just pray this prayer. Holy Spirit, illuminate our hearts. Help us to see what's there. Now with your eyes closed, I just want us to go ahead and consider one lie that came to mind earlier. Maybe it's the thing you're looking to for freedom that is really keeping you captive. Maybe it's an idea about what will make you happy or a lie about who you are or who God is or what others are like. Just take a moment to to let that lie come to mind. It's one lie. Once you have that in your mind, uh, just take a moment to name the lie. What, What is the lie that you're tempted to believe? And take a moment to recognize, what is that lie trying to deceive you into believing about God or yourself or someone else? What's it trying to deceive you to believe? Now, with that lie in mind, I want you to imagine that you are sitting in a green pasture. You're sitting in a green pasture. You're you're sitting down in the middle of the pasture, cross-legged. There's a a, a giant oak tree that's flourishing nearby. You feel the, the cold breeze on the back of your neck. You're enjoying the warmth of the sun above on your face. When Jesus slowly walks up to you, Jesus sits down in front of you and he crosses his legs so that your knees are touching. And he looks into your eyes. There's a a warmth in his eyes as they stare into yours. And you notice maybe a mixture of, of joy and compassion in those eyes. There may even be the earliest sign of a tear Welling up in them as they stare into yours. He's delighted to be with you. Then he opens his mouth and he speaks. And his words fill your ears. They interact with your your thoughts, your longings, your fears. These words he speaks, they're words of, of truth. Of truth that dismantles the lie you've been believing about yourself, or God, or those around you? What does he say to you? What do you hear? he's done speaking he reaches out his hand you grasp it and he he lifts you off the ground onto your feet and after you you dust off your your pants you walk together with him in the pasture you can feel the soft grass on your feet as you walk step in step with him joy and and wonder course through your veins as you hear him say I have is yours you are no longer a slave but my beloved child I have set you free you are free indeed spirit help us to see feel and walk in that freedom Thank you for being the Spirit who enabled our adoption into the family from slaves to children of God. I pray this in the name of Jesus and by the power of that very Spirit.